time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It's Monday, May 11th, 2020. So good to have you joining us the day after Mother's Day. Hope you had a wonderful Mother's Day. You know, last year we did a really fun doubleheader Mother's Day special. We had Marsha Davies and her daughter, Emily, uh, on the podcast. We also had Marilyn Richardson and Jason Frazier on, a mother-daughter team and a mother Sun team. It was such a good interview. We talked about it some. This year just kind of got away from me, everyone. I don't know what happened. It seems like maybe it's the COVID. We're all going on, especially what's going on in the industry. But it just seems like there's so many hot topics to talk about. That really kind of took over my attention. Again, today's hot topic, we've got Greg Keith joining us, Chief Risk Officer for Jenny May. We're going to be talking about the Jenny May approval process and essentials you need to know about. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're just so grateful to have you, our listeners, in on this podcast. I want to give a special thank you out to the Industry Syndicate. We'll be doing a podcast on coming Friday at 11 o'clock. We'll be putting out notes on that, so check our website. Also, I want to give a big shout out. You know, we have many leaders in our industry that listen to our podcast, and one of my clients and good friends has become such a good friend is Bill Shattuck, owner of Willowbend Mortgage. He's listening in today because I told him, you don't want to miss this, what we're talking about. So, Bill's good to have you here. Bill's one of the many owners that listens to our podcast, uh, owners of mortgage companies. He's a non-involved mortgage owner and owns a mortgage company. He doesn't directly get involved and always love to have the owners out there. We have industry participants like Bill, senior most owners of companies. By the way, one of my favorite stories is when Bill picked up the phone and called our legislator when we were going through some things. It's fun working in that caliber individual who can just pick up the phone and you got Roger Williams right out of a committee meeting and had him step out and talk to us on the phone in a conference call. Kudos out to all you leaders. I think that we cannot do enough to be connecting together. And hopefully the Lickin' on Lending podcast is helping, as we say here in Texas, all y'all connect around topics that we have similar talking points. That really gets us off into talking about the top 2019 top performers podcast. It was one that we aired on Monday of last week in the morning. Social Survey had that out, so it was really good to get that out. You can go check it out. It's on YouTube. We'll put a link in our show notes there. But the 2000 Social Survey top performers surveys results are out. You got to check this out, folks. Go check out the link in YouTube. I tell you, I love what Social Survey is doing on reputation management, and now they're putting out top performers, and we have several of our clients at the top of the list. So thrilled about it. Could go on and on. Just go check out the YouTube video that we put on our link in our show notes on the Lickin' on Lending website and see what it takes to be a top performer. And for those of you that are not using Social Survey, it's my free plug to them. Use them and check out what you can do. Really impressive. I want to say a special thank you to the NBA. We're talking about the importance of having your voice be heard. They're one of our sponsors. We're very thrilled to have them. But check out the interview that I did with Bill Kelmer and Pete Mills on April 17th talking about what's going on. And we've also got an NBA State of the Industry address coming up this week, if I'm not mistaken. But check it out at the NBA website. Become a member of the NBA. I got so thrilled when I heard from Trisha Migliazzo the other day, who told me that, hey, if someone was listening to your podcast and you were admonishing them or encouraging them to become a member of the NBA, and they did. Those of you that are listening, thank you for taking action on that recommendation. It meant a lot to them, and of course it means a lot to have you guys following on what we recommend. Also, I want you to check out Fusion Bot, which is a Finastra product. It works great, addressing so many issues. Go to our website, listen to the videos we have there. A lot going on, a lot of development at Finastra. And also, Lenders One and the Mortgage Collaborative. Both of these are co-ops that help you create competitive advantages in the marketplace. Also, Community Lenders of America is another. Pleased to have their 
sponsorship, as well as Indicom, as well as Incelerate. Love what Josh and company, Josh Friend, is doing at Incelerate. It's a leading-edge product that allows you to enhance your borrower engagement. Some really impressive tools of what they're using. Also, Ainsworth Advisors. So thrilled to have them as a sponsor. Check out Adam Wellwood's testimony that he did. Save 300000 by just having Ainsworth as an advisor. AI Assist, using artificial intelligence to reach borrowers. Such an exciting thing that they're doing, as well as Celebrity Home Loans. Worked with them last week on a major approval for them. Really fun to work with Pete Gabrione. Go listen to his podcast November 18th, as well as Knowledge Cube. I'm doing more with Knowledge Cube Learning Management System. Really impressed with what Ken Perry and the team have done, as well as Mobility RE and Modic. Both of these are using powerful tools which you can go in and search for loan officers and realtors that just meet exactly your profile, what you're looking to do with it. Both these companies do a great job out there. They're actually very complementary to each other. Some view them as competitors. I view them as complementary, great companies. Check them out. Modex as well as Mobility RE. Also, Velma does a great job of getting them word out. Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant is what Velma stands for. And then also VendorSurf. VendorSurf is a great way for you to find the latest vendors. So check out VendorSurf.com as well as Vidyard. We use them for our video production. Also, a special thank you goes out to Alice, Andy, and Alan and Joe for their contributions each and every week. So let's jump over to Les Parker and get this week's TM Spotlight and a macro view of the markets. Less. TM Spotlight Soundbites is brought to you by PowerSeller, making hedging easy. But markets can't tell the false from the real. Who can they trust? Who can they trust? Some of the world's largest hedge funds are turning to gold. They forecast devaluations of major currencies sparked by central banks' unprecedented responses to the economic coma to fight coronavirus. A while back, TM Spotlight wrote, Anticipate flight to gold more than flight to treasuries. Don't be surprised when the central banks doubt each other's creditworthiness. Gold is the credit swap for central banks, so everyone wants to turn to gold. These views are my own. Go to tmspotlight.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. Dang. Good word. So you're wondering why I said dang, right? Let me tell you. We are I'm saying dang because I sold my all my gold out of price. Now I'm going to held on to some of that. Oh well. So anyway, Les Parker, good job. Everything's turning to gold, folks. That's a bit ominous when you start thinking that everyone's starting to look at gold as the, the primary thing rather than bonds. Doesn't bode well for what lies ahead. Check out tmspotlight.com to subscribe to Les's daily update. Joe Farr, good to have you here with us as you are each and every week. I don't know. I wasn't encouraged by hearing everyone's out buying gold, Joe, other than I wish, no. I, I, wish I had not sold mine. I did real well. I sold it at a nice profit. I should have held on to it. It's good to hear your voice. What you got for us? MBS prices are down a bit today. They've yeah. fallen to be there down about a quarter of a point. I can't point to anything real specifically. There's been some news about an antigen that's been approved by the FDA that may have some promise and things like that. Or really, all it takes. The stock market was lower this morning, open lower after Europe was lower, but they've since rallied and are now down back to almost break even. Some of that also may be based on some favorable information regarding that antigen. But you know, so the prices both. Bonds and stock prices continue to fluctuate based on what headlines are coming out of the virus. Last week, MBS prices fell 25 basis points or so. The data really didn't have much to do with it. Even the jobs data didn't move the market. Yeah. Can you imagine a loss of 20 million jobs and the worst unemployment rate ever? Yeah, well, the stock market rallies 455 points. It's like shake your head. You have to. Maybe the one reason is that those numbers were pretty close to the consensus numbers. And, you know, the, the forecasters have just been terrible at putting out consensus as to what might come out. But last week, the numbers were really spot on as far as consensus goes. So I'll give them credit for a change. And, you know, and it's a little bit of a drop in MBS prices. Mortgage rates are still near the lowest of all time. It's so low that now a 2% mortgage backed security is needed. 
And, you know, when you think about a mortgage-backed security, that's the yield on the security, and you had a servicing yeah. fee and a guaranteed fee. And, you know, you're talking about mortgages with coupons, you know, at three or so. So it's been a lot It's a good time for mortgage lending. We always counter-cyclical, so it's a good time if we can just get everyone back to work and, and verify that they're working. We will have a robust market. Dave, in the week ahead, you know, I think it would be a lot like this last week was, not driven by economic data. Even though there's some pretty important stuff coming out, we got CPI coming out tomorrow. Weekly jobless claims have been important on Thursdays. And then retail sales on Friday. So, you know, some pretty important economic data that will show just how weak April was. All that's April data except the jobless claims. You know, what, what really is going to become the focus is the pace of reopening versus the pace of new coronavirus numbers. And so, and then also, Dave, the Treasury auction, $100 billion worth of longer dated treasuries this week. And then they're also introducing a 20-year treasury auction, $20 billion of that next week. So what they're doing is issuing these longer dated instruments that will compete with mortgage-backed securities. And you know, anytime you got the amount of supply that they're going to issue to pay for the stimulus plans to pay for the ongoing deficit. And, you know, we start doing a lot of refinances and mortgage-backed securities are issued right and left. There's going to be a lot of supply on the market. And anytime there's a lot of supply, if you don't have the demand to meet it, prices are going to fall and yields will rise. And so security auctions hadn't been an important thing to do so recently, but I think it's going to become more as it could have an impact on intraday and and overall longer-term mortgage rate. Yeah, I think this is going to be such an unusual season all the way around, Joe. I don't know sure what they think about some of this, other than it, yeah. it is unusual. So anything, what are you saying? Rates are going to continue to stay at these levels? Any, you want to make a wager on well, predictions? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's a reason for them to go up much in the near term, but no. I, I certainly expect that maybe it's just the amount of treasury auctions that come on, or, or maybe it's the amount of refinance activity that produces new MBS. But the big supplies, the long-term debt, are, are going to have to find a market, and that would be one of my bigger concerns. Well, how to monitor all this is so important. Thanks, Joe, for bringing us the latest information. Look forward to having you listen to and give our feedback on it. I said, Jenny May, hot topic. I was going to say, I want you to participate, but it's pre-recorded. So I'd love to if you could stick around and probably catch a few comments afterwards if you want to. That'd be awesome. A lot of people ask me, Joe, what am I using to monitor the markets? And I got to tell you, I started using recently MBS Live. I am loving this. What Matthew Graham has put together on this website is amazing. Go check out mbslive.com. And then the other one that I use is one with Barry Habib that puts on every week. It's MBS Highway. Dear friend, I love Barry and his whole team. Go check out the interview we had recently with Dan Habib. Barry's got a new book he's releasing, Money in the Streets. I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy that book, read it. Lots of good stuff. He actually had a long interview last week with Mark Calabria, and he did a swing on us. He said Mark convinced him of his position he's at and the position he's taking. And don't have time to get into all that for the sake of it, but I encourage you to go out to MBS Highway and listen to the interview that Barry did last Monday, I believe, with Mark Calabria and kind of what the plans are, what's going on. So very interesting information on these two products and services. I use both of them. Very, very pleased with it. Joe, thank you so much for your feedback today. Really appreciate sure. it. Alice Alvey, so good to have you with us this week. We missed you last week. Alice is live, and she is the CMBA designation. She's also Vice President of Trading and Education at Union Home. Bill Cosgrove and Al do a great job at that company. And they're so smart because they hired the best because we just think that highly of you, Alice. Good to have you with us. Appreciate you. Thank you, Dave. Yes, I am very, very fortunate to work at Union Home Mortgage. And uh, Bill Cosgrove and Al Blank are just tremendous leaders. I've learned a lot from them. So it's a great place to work. So I'm going to segue into the legislative update, which is really interesting. So GovTracks is one of my go-to sites out of the many that I search to see what's going on. And they put up a post I thought I wanted to think all of you should be aware of. So where is Congress during the pandemic? 
So by this time in 2019, Congress had held more than 535 more committee meetings and 108 more votes than it has this year. When you look at the calendar, you can see, okay, they were worked through February and March just as before, and then now April and May, they're not doing anything, and I think we're still paying them. So that's another issue, right? So when Congress was last in session, there were 27 legislators who were self-quarantined, and six of them had tested positive. And basically, it left everything going on in Congress to an absolute halt. Uh, there was a report published back in March 23rd of this year, and it's all about the majority staff report examining voting options during the pandemic. So why don't they just hold votes remotely? They have rules that say they need to be face-to-face and sitting in the House chamber. Well, that's not happening. Anybody who thinks this is just temporary, I'm of the mindset, We've entered into a stage where really grasping how to work remote. Consumers aren't going to want to sit face-to-face for applications. Congress has to figure out how to vote remote. And it came out from their committee, of course, this was a congressional report. When you read it, I'm sorry, you know, it's hard not to laugh because (laughs) they're concerned about technology. We're all on Zoom. My mom's 84 and she's on Zoom. It works great. And... The, the report talks yeah. as if, oh, we're going to have a technology problem. How are we going to know who votes? How, I mean, the report is like it was written in the 60s on how are we going to pull this off. <laughs> and yeah. we're, and then they talk about, well, what if the congressman doesn't have reliable seller? And I'm thinking, if they don't have reliable seller, then neither do their constituents. So that's something they should be actively solving for, right? Because in this world, <laughs> everybody needs reliable access to the Internet. So anyway, it was just kind of crazy this report that was all concerned and, and they didn't move forward so my message to our listeners and would love to get MBA's take on this is we have to get congress moving now that they can work remote yes. figure out the technology they're smart people they do a lot more complicated stuff than us and get back to work because they're not working right now they're not doing anything and there's too much at stake right now when you look at different house bills and things that do need to get done that are very related to proper funding of different issues related to the pandemic. You know, we don't want them paying attention to mortgages. They got other stuff to go pay attention to unless they're giving us relief. But we need them back in business and they're not functioning right now. So either take a pay cut like everybody else had to who's not working full time or get back to work and figure out how to do it remote. That's kind of my two cents today, Dave, on the legislative update. Love it. I love it. I went to the website, (laughs) govtrack.us, everybody. Go check this out. We'll put it in our show notes. I love it. Where is Congress? There's a banner that pops up. It's time for Congress to get back to work remotely. I love that. We're in election season, which David Stevens always says is a silly season anyway. It's craziness what goes on. But this one is just absurd. The number of positions that have not yet been filled by this Congress. I'm just so upset with them. Anyway, don't even get me started. Well, you get a lot of people to go, well, you can't have private meetings, right? How do you, well, figure it out. You can do this with Zoom. You can still take attendance. Zoom it. I'm going to have to go face to face to vote on the rules changes. So we all agree there are rule changes made, but go do it. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. If your mom could do it and your mom's smart, she is. And smart, right, smart yeah. lady. But I was talking to Bill Stipek, a dear friend of mine who is one of the guys that was in the industry. He's retired out now for a number of years with Golden West and then with Wachovia and all of that. I called Bill and asked him, what, what are you doing? Because out in front of his lake house, and, and we used to be neighbors on, on Beaver Island here in, on Lake LBJ. And I was talking, he says, we're doing a Zoom meeting right now with all our family. So they had a Zoom Mother's Day meeting. And I thought, how fun. Yeah, what you can do. So we were trying we to celebrate that, it on the way. Is that what you did too? Yeah, well, we were also celebrating our youngest daughter's birthday. So it was a birthday, Mother Day's combined. So we went on the lake, and I thought about you and Andy and how much fun we had out on Torch Lake at that one time. So appreciate you, Alice Alvey, at many levels. Greet Andy. So glad to have you here. Appreciate it. And say hi, of course, to Bill and Al and great company, Union Home Mortgage. Let's get over to a tech update. Alan Pollock's here. What you got for us today, Alan? My goodness, Alice, you said some key words that were just absolutely fantastic. So consumers are not going to want to sit face to face and my mom's on Zoom and it works great. So I'm going to say yeah. those. We're going to use them a few times. What, David, what is the difference 
between a smart herb garden for ninety nine ninety five or a fun pop socket phone grip for ten dollars. <laughs> I have no idea. What? They're both in the top five list of tech gifts from Mother's Day. Are you serious? And what's amazing, yeah, but the number one is an Amazon Echo smart speaker, believe it or not, and wireless earbuds and a fitness tracker are in there as well. Yeah, if you're looking to grow with a Bluetooth LED light, you can get yourself a smart herb garden. Moving on to better news. I had no idea I saw this, and I thought this was interesting, just thinking of, you know, our technology has to work, right? It's got to be up and yeah. running all the time. Netflix added 16 million new signups during the COVID which I thought was amazing. Yeah. They've blown away all the competition as far as the total amount of subscribers. They have very minimal tech issues, if any, and their share has grown over 30% this year. Can you believe it? I heard so Universal Studios is now going to start releasing some of their new films via Netflix because they're anticipating this is going to change the way people go to movies. I still want to, can't wait to get back yeah. to a movie theater. But I get it. That's something that's happening. So the theaters are now boycotting Universal Studios. There's some really interesting things that are coming to come out. I'm not sure that we have all figured it out, but we are going to be living life a little bit differently. For but sure. why? Yeah, not even movies. But why watch one episode on TV that ends after lots of commercials when you can binge watch five of them? The there story you go. continues. Yeah. Yeah. So. We binge watched The Chosen, which I'd recommend for anybody over Easter, and it was amazing. And yeah, it's so fast. You just get on there and watch it. Well, hopefully, David, people are binge listening to us because you yeah. can do that too. They are. And so check this out MasterCard is really cool. CNBC, they have said that contactless payments jumped 40% as shoppers fear germs on cash and credit cards. It's funny because I read this, and then this morning I was listening to Breaking Banks. Yep. And, you know, they, they talked about one of the gentlemen on the podcast says, I don't agree. He goes, it's called initiated contactless, but it's not contactless because all you do is start it, but you still have to sign your name or enter your pin code. The only place, and I think he said that's truly contactless is Chick-fil-A. So if you're interested in learning more about contactless, you can Google that. But MasterCard put some stats out there. They have seen a 40% increase in their contactless cards. We will get there, I'm sure. Apple pays a lot, obviously a lot easier. And the new norm is probably going to include a lot of people or even our credit card companies, for example, sending out those new contactless chip cards that you could just tap on the top of the screen. All right, David, you know, we talked, uh, and I mentioned this the last two weeks, you know, I, I made a statement, technology adoption is more significant today than any time in the past. I wanted to chat quickly today about AI and smart speakers. Plus, it was number one on the list for Mother's Day gifts, technology side. And voicebot.ai had a survey. They said that now 90 million adults have smart speakers, basically one-third of all U.S. adults. And what they said is a 32% growth of digital assistance in the last year. And, Alice, that brings me back to what you said, right? Customers are not going to want to sit face-to-face. And it even makes you think of all the credit unions and, and folks that, even, not just credit unions, but folks that did the mortgage process or the financial experience, whether you were a financial analyst or consultant or a planner, you're still part of the mortgage process and you did these things face-to-face. So because of that process, times have now changed. And, you know, David, we talked a lot about chatbots. You and I even did a mini prototype. I've also done a chatbot prototype and a digital human prototype in the years past. Very interesting. I, I want to share two quick things. One is the market share. Amazon right now has a 50% market share. It's actually 53%. Google has a 30% market share on smart speakers. And then there's a couple other ones that fill in the gap. In 2019, Amazon had a 61% market share. So there's actually been a drop in market share because other systems and other components have sort of come to market, which is kind of interesting. So we're still seeing a growth but we're seeing a slowdown and a drop in certain devices. Anyways, where I'm going with this is, you know, many of us have tried a chatbot strategy. We continue to think about chatbot. The new norm is forcing us to think of ways to interact with our customers, with members. A great example, David, I heard on uh, Breaking Banks, actually, Aspire Credit Union, what they did, and this doesn't have anything to do with technology. The federal government, when they gave the stimulus checks out, they went and automatically tried to send them to all of the ACH information they have. But it turns out that those bank accounts don't exist anymore. They were closed. 
And so what the credit union did is for their members, they called every single member and they wow. verified what the new account info is so that the stimulus checks didn't go to a black hole. Now, that wasn't a technology thing. That's a relationship thing. And so when we think yeah. about chatbots and digital assistants, we're coming to a world where even face-to-face, -face, if you walk into a branch, how can we make that experience contactless? Now, there's privacy concerns, there's security concerns. Right. But just today, right. you know, David, if you think back many podcasts, we talked about, you know, how loan officers took 13 times, 13, I think, in order to, to sort of, you know, hook line and bring in that deal. But what we're talking about is, you know, a conversational experience, human emotion and empathy, building trust, and then getting more data. The more data we have, we can build more experience and we can create that conversation. I will focus next week on more about what we're doing in our industry with chatbots and voice assistants. I just wanted yeah. to tease the topic and sort of gives everyone something to yeah. think about. But the new norm may include uh, a lot more digital assistance. Oh, yeah. I, I thoroughly well expect it. But I got to ask you a question. Yeah. I, I've seen it so many times. I can't remember who initially turned me on to it. But you know, Alexa for seniors is called Alexa Silver. Have you seen what Saturday Night Live did with that video? It is hilarious. So Google, if you haven't looked at it, folks, Google what I just Googled was a senior citizen Alexa video. It's the one that, you know, if you want to put Alexa Silver, it is hilarious. I love it. Seniors uh, are picking up I on this stuff. I will put it on my LinkedIn. And yeah. I've got a, another one, too. I'll put two of them on my LinkedIn this afternoon. Love to hear some feedback and comments for everyone. And don't forget, you can reach me, Alan, at TMS-advisors.com. Yeah. yeah, good advisor, too. He is. Alan, thank you so much for being here with us. Appreciate you, friend. Thank you. Andy Likewise. Shell, the prophet doctor for Andy Shell. I got to get the doctor in front because you got a doctor on both ends. So we, we call him officially Dr. Andy Shell, and he's also known as the prophet doctor. So one is a ID identifier, who he is, what he's about, and the other one is his official title, Dr. Andy Shell. So good to have you back here with us. He's also, Thank I should you. mention, CPA, CFF, CMB, PhD, blah, blah, blah. Lots of stuff. Andy, and I love you. Best of all, well, good friend, BFF of Lickin. <laughs> you too. Well, I just got my trademark issued. Dr. Shell, the Prophet Doctor, is now a registered trademark. Uh -huh. uh, that's my, that's my, my new name. Hey, I had the, Alan commented about Alice. I, too, wanted to comment real quick about what Alice said about that Congress can't vote remotely. The thing that I find so astoundingly hypocritical about that is they yeah. want for citizens to vote for the president remotely by mail yes. or whatever, but yes. they can't vote remotely through a secure setup. Great point. It's just—it's it, all so self-serving. The hypocrisy—it is. I think we, the electorate, are just getting just so fed up with this Congress and the, the games they're playing right now. Is just—it's not going to go well for the Dems. I've got a bad, bad feeling for them. Not that we want to get into politics. We want to talk about profit and loss, P and Ls, how you can make more money. And that's, so what that's today, good, good feedback. Today we have the privilege of having Greg Keith from Jimmy May talking about Jimmy May approvals on the show here immediately after this segment, I suppose. So I wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about just broadly agency approval, agency relationships, uh, performance management, and a little acronym known as CMS that is yeah. often misunderstood. So talking about that, you know, some independent mortgage bank managers think that more volume means more profit, and that's it. We're good. It's all good. Don't ask me any more questions. The problem is, though, that it, this is a very short-sighted view because clearly, while making money is essential for survival, the the but is. When you're in a consumer-facing industry generating profit through consumer transactions, we have to consider how we make money an equally important question to address. So I'm, I'm bringing this up because this ties back into the Ginny May or any agency approval right. process. So you know, we, we know that the how mortgage lenders make money is important, and this actually was, came out of the crash, you know, the 2008 crash, which led to the regulatory reform. In that regulatory reform, we ended up with the 
CFPB, and it, it specifically, if you ever want to look this up, is because you're a nerd. Section <laughs> 1024, Title 10 of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform yep. and Consumer Protection Act of 2010 established the Consumer Protection Protection Bureau of the CFPB. Now, the thing about the CFPB, it, it is authorized to supervise any entity engaged in providing consumer financial products. So if you're a mortgage lender, you're under the CFPB guidance. Now, you know this. This isn't new. Yep. CFPB has been busy dealing with stuff. But here's where the rubber starts to meet the road when we start talking about dealing with federal agencies. Because all the federal agencies talk, and they all know what each other expects. The CFPB said that every mortgage lender must maintain a compliance management system. That's the CNS, a compliance management system. And it's, a, mm-hmm. it's not a computer system. It's a broad set of guidance and broad set of control design that I'm going to talk about here in just a second. So the, the CFPB said that this compliance management system has to be fully integrated into the framework of the mortgage lender, including product design delivery and administration across the entire product and service life cycle. So everything you do has to be touched by, monitored by, watched by your compliance management system. So that's why we have the CMS, and it's a system of checks and balances and oversight to ensure consumer protection. Now, this also enables management and employees to self-identify issues and implement corrective action. So the mortgage banker sits back and goes, well, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, we do that. Checkbox. The problem is it goes deeper than that. The CFPB specifically says that the compliant management system is implemented through two independent control components. And those two control components are, you want to go down agency approval? This is what you got to do for agency approval. This is a minimum. You've got to have this oversight design. The first control component is a board of directors, an advisory board, and management oversight. And that management oversight piece means that you watch it, you check it, you manage it, you monitor it, and you do something about it. But that's just that's just part. And some folks don't even have that. The other part is you have to have an operational structure that includes policies and procedures, and not just something right. you downloaded from all regs. It has to be real. It has to really be doing, do what you do. You have to have training, monitoring. Monitoring means you're watching to make sure people do the procedures you designed. And you have to have QWR, Qualified Written Requests. That's when a consumer writes you a letter about something and they want something. You have to respond to them in five days. You have to have it resolved in 30 days or you have to ask for permission. And you have to track all this stuff. Now, I, I teach all this stuff, so that's why it's familiar to me. I, I teach CMS yeah. and some of the MBA webinars I teach. So but here's the bottom line. If you want to swim in the agency waters, then you have to have governance, oversight, and monitoring of measurement. Some folks barely have measurement. You not only have to measure, you have to monitor and then right. act. Here, here's three questions I would, I would pose for people to consider when heading down this agency path. Do you have a board or an advisory board that has the ability to monitor and influence the business? Yes or no? Are all of the procedures monitored to ensure compliance through an internal control and quality assurance process within your organization? It's either yes or no, you either do or you don't. Do you fully embrace the requirements of qualified written requests to track and respond to requests timely? And you either do or you don't. If you answer don't know, maybe, or no to any of those, then you're not ready for an agency approval because you're probably going to so fail. true. Jenny May, as part of the agencies, which are federally interacting, so all these agencies interact together, they expect companies, they approve, to address they all so of these compliance so management system requirements. If you, can't, you have to do this. This isn't an option. Just Google CFPB CMS. And make sure you've done everything. Then you're beginning to be able to make an agency application. So it's the truth. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's way harder than you think. Well, I can say that with a tongue in cheek. It's not. It's not necessarily harder than you think if you do all this stuff. As long as you do all this stuff well, then then you can be okay. It's so good, Andy. And I just had a client. uh, Last week was a big week for one of my clients. We took them through a Mora review. And then we took them through, which is the Fannie Mae Mora review, and we then took and we we spent 
can't tell you how long we prepared them for this. And then we ran them through a mock Moore review, and then they went through the Moore review. They did really well. They came out fine. They're going to get approved with Fannie Mae and the full service and all that. But, I mean, I tell you, so many of the things that we had to prepare them for is so true. You bring up a really good one, and that is, do you have an advisory board? That is so important. I know, Andy Shell, you do advisory. You serve on boards. I serve on boards. I also created Ainsworth Advisors for that very reason. So check out AinsworthAdvisors.com. If you're looking for an advisory board, check that out. Of course, you can always get a hold of Andy Shell at Dr. Andy Shell at MBS-Team.com. Yeah. Let me add one more thing on that advisory board point. This is not a sometime, every once in a while, free thing. You need to get a board, have it meet at least quarterly, ideally monthly, have a yep. package that they review, that they re- respond to, ask questions that they approve, even if they're just an advisory board, not an actual board. And right. you probably need to be prepared to pay the member something and also make sure they're independent. You've got to have independent participants. It'll be a world of difference. It'll feel uh, odd to a mortgage company to have external people watching stuff. But welcome yep. to the world of government-sponsored businesses offering products to consumers. This is the world. Just get over it. Do it. If you don't, yep. you're not going to be as successful as you could have been. So true. Appreciate it. Again, Andy Shell can be reached at Dr. Shell, S-C-H-E-L-L, at mbs-team.com. Folks, or, thank you so or, much. Or just Andy. <laughs> or just Andy. I'm, yeah, just, I'm realizing <laughs> <you're>... I like... <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of right, but or just Andy at MBS-Team.com. Either one of them do. So good job, Andy. Appreciate it so much. Appreciate you all being a part of the podcast. All of them, Alice, Andy, Joe, the whole group. We appreciate all y'all for being here. That wraps up this week's mortgage update. That's the first half of our podcast. For those of you who are listening live, don't go anywhere. We're going to get right into it. Uh, If you're listening on a downloaded basis, this will wrap up this podcast and then just continue on listening in to Gregory Keith, who we'll have on in just a second. For those of you listening live, stay right here. Listeners, I am so honored to have Greg Keith, Senior Vice President and Chief Risk Officer for Jenny May. Welcome to the microphone. Appreciate you taking time, Greg, to be here with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Now, let's get to the longevity. You've been there nine years. Are you getting to be one of the more senior individuals there? Well, in the senior management team, I am certainly one of the more long-tenured employees, but we have employees that go back to the to the mid-1980s that are still part of our staff. Oh, wow. We certainly have our share of folks that have dedicated their careers to uh, making sure Americans can get access to affordable housing. Well, you've got a stellar resume, and folks, I encourage you to go check out his resume on LinkedIn. We'll put a link to it. But you were also at Fannie Mae. You were a, a director there, as well as First Union. You were at KPMG and also a financial analyst, uh, Great American Bank. You've got a great resume. Let's let our listeners just get to know you a little bit, some of your background that's relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. You know, I started in this business while I was still in college. I worked at a San Diego-based SNL. Gave me my first opportunity to have a seat for the SNL crisis. From there, I went to work for John Robbins at American Residential Mortgage there in La Jolla, right. which was yeah. one of my favorite jobs I've ever had in my lifetime. From there, as you mentioned, KPMG, where I consulted for some of the largest mortgage companies uh, in the country, including GE, First Nationwide, and in the subprime space, Ames Home Loan. Again, from there, I went to First Union, and, and I got my second crisis. I got exposure to the Russian flu. <laughs> and then had to help First Union navigate its way out of some of those challenges. From there to Fannie Mae was, as you pointed out, where I enjoyed the, the fun of the, the Great Recession and, and the, the crisis, yeah. of, which brings us up to today where we are you know, facing a new challenge to the industry. Well, this is certainly bringing about some changes in how we look at housing finance and certainly as a lender, and, and that's really why I wanted to get you on and have you give our listeners an update because what I'm experiencing, which is I'm sure what you're experiencing, is a surge of interest to get approved with Jenny May. And so, folks, what we're doing is we're going to get into the various things that we look at as a consulting firm, the, the requirements that Jenny May specifically looks for. We have the minimum requirements. And I, I think one of the great analogies you've used over the numerous times we've talked, Greg, is you talk 
about getting into college. And I think one of the examples you have is pick one of the Ivy League schools. There are the minimum requirements, but how many people get admitted meeting the minimum requirements? Talk about that, if you would. Set the proper expectation for everybody. Sure. The Ginny Mae program is, is a highly prescribed program, so you need to really be very tight in how you manage your business relative to the handbooks of the insurance agencies, as well as managing to our mortgage-backed securities guide. It can be cash-intensive to originate and maintain the servicing asset. And lastly, I think a lot of folks forget that issuers retain some level of credit risk. So given that the business is complex and can be challenging, you know, our view of what a a successful issuer would look like includes a really strong corporate and staff resume that reflects their ability to manage the interest rate risk and credit risk inherent within the business, expertise in managing a servicing asset that is very dynamic and and perhaps labor-intensive, as well as experience complying with a highly prescribed program. The next thing that we care about is, you know, do they have a thoughtful business plan, an ability to achieve scale, an ability to ensure that they have some diversity in their revenue streams? A good example of that is manifesting itself today. Several issuers have applied to our program with the desire to be a PIT only. PIT is our co-issuance program. And what we see is that PIT acquirers have dried up at the moment, leaving those issuers with a challenge of finding liquidity for their MBS. The next thing that we care about, of course, is the financial wherewithal. It's not enough to say, well, we meet the minimum. What we want to see is that they have a a history of, of managing through multiple cycles, that they have the cash needed to originate loans as well as manage the interest rate risk and the hedges associated with those the cash that they might need to make advances when the loans are delinquent or alternatively where there's forbearance in place. And lastly, we like to see that there's been a significant investment in infrastructure. You know, have they purchased or installed technology that increases their level of controls, increases their level of efficiency? Are they governed by sound, you know, policies and procedures? And do they have, you know, what we would consider to be a robust, you know, kind of governance structure All of those allow us to get the level of comfort that when we put the government's guarantee, the unconditional stamp of approval from the U.S. government, that we can feel that that's an appropriate risk for the government to be taking. Let's dive into a couple of those. One of, first of all, everyone talks about net worth, tangible net worth, cash net worth. Is there a relationship between cash and volume? There's no way that you can really, once someone's approved, they can start originating more than their cash position can handle. What would you say to those that want to get into the program and say, no, 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 I I guarantee I won't originate more than what our cash position would allow? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is important. The net worth and liquidity requirements, to a large degree, serve as a um, good bill of health that you have been able to aggregate some capital and and accrete a level of liquidity. But certainly, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a healthy organization. And one of the things we do see from time to time is some issuers will over-risk themselves relative to their financial strength. And that's that's really a, a challenge. You know, again, folks shouldn't think of these requirements as a good uh, seal of approval, meeting the minimums, whether as an applicant or over the longer term once they become an issuer, is really not the goal. The goal is not to to get a C. The goal is to try to get an A. (laughs) Great way to put it. Greg, a lot of folks say, okay, there's a lot to applying. Why don't I just go out and buy a company? And there's certainly enough companies out there that are for sale. We're going to talk about this later in the interview, but I know there's something like 65 approved entities that are not even really participating. They're approved, but they're not really active. And someone might say, well, I want to go pick up one of those companies, and I'll get them active. Is there a difference in applying versus acquiring, buying a company? And how does Jenny May look at that? Well, the, the answer is they, they look very similar. The change of control process includes, you know, a lot of the same things that we talked about relative to the, to the de novo issuer approval. We're very focused on what the combined 
corporate and staff resume will look like once the change of control has occurred, understand their business plan, understand you know, the aggregate financial capability of the combined organization. And so really, a potential acquirer shouldn't think of this as a way to use a lack of a better term, beat the system. We still exercise quite a bit of discretion and very thoughtful underwriting of those transactions. And therefore, I think that to the extent an organization has done their homework, I'm not sure that it provides the strategic advantage, other than to the extent that they're able to acquire capabilities that they don't have today. Right. And I think that's one of the only primary advantages is if you acquire the right company that has the right talent on board, then there is a possibility that you're going to hire recent experience, you could say. So buying a company doesn't necessarily circumvent the review process. It might, you might be able to pick up some people if you're picking up the right company. You might be able to pick up some experience, but you're going to go through virtually all the steps. But are there more steps in getting approved with Jenny Me as a buyer versus applying, or is it pretty much the same? It should be a consistent expectation of the amount of work as well as the, the timeline. You know, I think both of them, given our, at the moment, dearth of applicants, we shouldn't have really a disparate timeline for for the consideration of either of those options. So if someone does know of a company out there that they could acquire, they're going to have expense acquiring it, or they could go through the same process and apply. That's kind of what I had understood. I've actually thought at times and advised that there are sometimes more that you go through than in buying a company because there's other steps that are involved with the change of control. But that's, that's encouraging to hear. One of the things you mentioned was John Robbins, who's one of my dear friends. I did an interview of him for the Lickin' on Leadership podcast, and I also had the honor of uh, working with him on when he was a part of a company and getting approved probably in the last uh, five to eight years or so is what I guess, based on time. Time fast goes fast. But it's so important to have the right staff and the right amount of experience. This was such a good example to me because John is so well-known to you, used to work for him. You, like you said, it's one of his, your favorite jobs. I have so much respect for John and that experience. Talk about when you're looking at experience. What is, how recent does it have to be? How, when, you're, when, when like the case of John, he was well-known to you, how much does that influence and might offset other weaker aspects of the package? Well, the key there was that uh, despite my affection for John, he wasn't the, the deciding factor. Certainly the breadth of the folks that he had brought on board as, as a collective team had you know, close to 25 years of experience in, in the secondary market, as well as you know, broad experience of managing you know, Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny portfolios from a servicing standpoint as well as understood, you know, the, the you know, secondary market implications of delivering into a Ginnie Mae TBA. So John had actually assembled and it had invested in a deeper bench, and that is really what was able to allow us to, to move forward with that change of control. You know, it's not always the case that if sometimes you may have a, a strong leader or even uh, someone who has exceptional skills, but if they haven't surrounded themselves with the, the right level of talent, there is the possibility that they won't be successful in their acquisition. That is such a good point. I think a lot of people say, well, this person was you know, a major name in the industry at one point. They're coming back in, and, and we're using their name, and we're hoping to get approved. Jenny May. The key to that application and the key to any application, whether the leaders are known to you or not, is the people that they surround themselves with. So let's dive into that a bit. One of the things you and I have talked about is you like to see someone with recent Jenny May experience. How recent, and are we finding a challenge in the industry to find people that are so few people that are really approved with Jenny May? Was it 400-some companies, if I recall correctly? Is that a right, correct number? That's about right, yeah. Yeah, somewhere around that number. Anyway, that's why I thought I looked up. But uh, knowing that we have that small a group to, of talent to pull from, those people could be hard to get and find. Talk about what are you looking for when it comes to experienced individuals? A lot of folks have, have assumed that we're very focused on the recentness of the experience, probably less so on the recentness, but more so on the diversity of that experience. To give you an example, in, in servicing oversight, for example, some folks have provided resumes of people that have done investor reporting for five years, but that's the extent of their experience in servicing. 
as you might expect, you know, we have the desire that the folks that are managing this risk understand all the operational elements from investor reporting to repurchases to default management and that they have the ability to either provide those services themselves or if they're using a subservicer, provide rigorous and meaningful oversight of their service provider. So, and when it comes to be service provider, we're talking times, oftentimes, one, a subservicer. And how do you view subservicers? Is that viewed negatively, neutrally within Jenny Well, we think that subservicing is a great opportunity to create economies of scale for smaller issuers, as well as to the extent that issuers have identified where their core strengths are. They, they've decided that servicing may not be where they want to make their investments. So I don't think there's a, a downside to subservicing, of course. But what we do expect, though, is that the issuer does understand that they're accountable for the servicing of the asset. If something goes wrong, Jenny May is not going to call your subservicer. We're going to call you, and we expect that you right. will solve that problem for us. So you need to make sure that you have the ability to meet those expectations and meet that guidelines of our program. Let's talk a little bit about the process. I want to get on to the existing issuers of that out there, those that are approved already with the company, what we can anticipate. And we're going to go to your slide deck here in just a minute that you used at the Jenny May 2020 Summit. But let's go through the process. Someone applying for Jenny May, if you could kind of walk us through what is the process and what are the time frames someone can expect. And that's assuming we have a clean package that's coming into you. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you started off on the right foot. Oftentimes, we receive an application package that, that is either incomplete or where it may meet the, the form, it hasn't met the substance. And so, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of iteration that goes on getting the applicant to, to complete the package as required. But once we receive it, there is, at the moment, a fairly short list of applicants. And so, it is oftentimes able to be considered, you know, within a couple of weeks of receiving a full package. And then, you know, it does go through a multiple sign-off process that includes myself, as well as some of my colleagues that work in our Office of Issuer and Portfolio Management, where the application is also kind of reviewed for appropriateness as a new entrant to the program. Well, and that whole overall process, what's a reasonable expectation? Again, assuming the package is complete and meeting the proper requirements, any time frames that you can generally give? I know that can change dramatically by how many people are applying and going through the system, but generally speaking, what are, what are your goals and objectives? I, I think that a, a reasonable expectation is two to three months at the at the moment. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we've known that those periods have gotten elongated at different times where you were insanely where people are applying. Greg, you recently had the Jenny May 2020 Summit, and you did a great job of presenting a number of interesting facts there on a slide deck, and I've been privileged to look at that, and I want to get into that. First of all, there, I, I want to get to the, the part of the slide deck where you talked about a paradigm shift. If you'd share with our listeners, what is the paradigm shift that you're seeing going on right now? Yeah, you know, if you look back at the history of Jenny May, prior to my arrival, it had always had a rich history of counterparty risk management. Unfortunately, much of the focus had been based on compliance and meeting the minimum expectations of the MBS guide. What we've done is we said, look, it's not just compliance. It's also looking at it from a risk base perspective. But some of the other things that we're, we're really looking to change in our risk management paradigm is a lot more transparency with our issuers, a lot more, you know, insight into the things that we're thinking about, give them opportunities to understand where our concerns may lie. We're very focused on ensuring that we don't run out and implement requirements that violate the, the, the mistake of, of creating one-size-fits-all requirements. And certainly, we want to make sure that we're very targeted in our efforts to improve the risk profile. You know, we obviously want to balance risk-taking for the government, um, at the same time, ensuring that we have a program that adequately attracts capital, attracts participation, and ensures that the Ginny May ecosystem continues to thrive. 
Well, let's talk about some of the various risk factors. And in this slide deck and in your presentation, you talked about performance-focused risk, and you talked about issuer risk grades. Could you talk about that as well as the potential future exposure? So in that particular presentation, I had you know, kind of a bifurcation between things we do with all issuers, irrespective mm-hmm. of whether we think they're risky or not, and then things that we do for, for issuers that may require elevated kind of monitoring and assessment. When we look at the, what we do for all issuers, some of the things that we do that are performance-based is we create an issuer risk grade for each and every one of our issuers. This is a framework that takes advantage of either publicly available ratings to the extent that our issuers are rated, or alternatively, we have a couple of methods to create synthetic ratings. And so for the mortgage bankers, we have created a statistical rating agency equivalent for our non-banks that allow us to understand the relative probability of default for those issuers. Similarly, we've created a stochastic model that models out the issuer's portfolio and understands under a stressed environment, and it models out the potential either positive or negative cash flows from a portfolio that allows us to do two things. One, it allows us to evaluate the impact on our issuer, and it's an input into what the potential risk they might be facing is as well as it allows us to understand what kind of exposure we might have to the extent that the issuer ultimately defaults. Um, In this category of performance-focused reviews, we also have our issuer operational profile, which is a web-based self-service tool that issuers can use that is really a scorecard across a broad array of metrics that lets an issuer know how they're performing relative to their peers, or alternatively, how they're performing established benchmarks. Then we also do a handful of compliance-focused activities, compliance with various thresholds we might have, like delinquencies, insurance matching, net worth, and liquidity. We have compliance with the requirements under the Fidelity and E&O insurance policies. Um, And lastly, we do have our on-site compliance reviews which allow us to assess the issuer's compliance with our guide. Greg, you talked about elevated risk. What are some of the factors that invoke a status of elevated risk? There's obviously some, some elevated assessment that is done um, on our issuers that, that might be driven by their size or the level of complexity of their organization. The way we might handle some of those would be targeted on-site reviews, could include, you know, monthly or quarterly what we call spotlight calls. And lastly, there's been much written in the press about some meetings we held with our largest non-banks that have been dubbed the issuer liquidity meetings. But essentially, these were meetings that allowed us to talk to the issuers, understand their strategies, understand their mitigating plans, you know, to the extent that we, we had a, a turn to an adverse economic environment. Then there's, you know, elevated, you know, kind of monitoring and management that's, that's due to relative performance. Issuers might become, uh, you know, on the watch list. We do have enhanced monitoring plans. Issuers may have received a notice of violation. We may have invoked a unilateral requirement for additional financials. And lastly, there could be issuers that, for lack of a better term, is really a pre-default status. Right. Of all these particular performance-driven metrics, what is the one that seems to show up the most often or shows up in your desk, uh, why an issuer is on the watch list? Well, maybe it's worthwhile for us to go ahead and talk a little bit about what the watch list is. So the watch list is, is a tool that allows us to prioritize our resources as well as ensure that we're applying the requisite level of oversight to our issuers. The three categories of the watch list include those that have potentially scored poorly on our issuer risk grade process. Their synthetic risk grades suggest that they have a higher probability of default. The second category is related to those that may have violated one of our compliance requirements. They may have elevated delinquencies. They may have um, an unsatisfactory level of loans that are properly insured and they may have violated some of our financial requirements. And then the last category is what we call a discretionary category, 
oftentimes will include issuers that perhaps are facing regulatory challenges or alternatively maybe over-risking relative to their, their infrastructure and financial capabilities. And so really the way we use it is that we work with issuers to resolve these challenges. It becomes a way to have that dialogue and uh, understand what their, their strategies are to, to remedy the situation. It is certainly factored into decisions we make on commitment authority, the willingness for us to enter into an acknowledgement agreement, um, and lastly, to the extent that there is a servicing transfer contemplated, it is certainly part of the assessment and the analysis we go through. And, you know, the last point I would make is we certainly don't want a situation where issuers are perpetually, you know, on the watch list. Our expectation is that issuers are going through levels of remediation and could see a day when they are removed from the watch list. Yeah, I know you want everyone included as much as possible. It's, uh, I'm impressed with what extent you go to keeping people in the program, and I applaud you for that. I want to go to what you had in your presentation is the two similar issuer profiles. This was like a case study, almost like running down two parallel paths. If you could, as best you can, not describe the slides you had, or as best you can, uh, Greg, explain the various factors that go into how two issuers with similar profiles can differ so much. Yeah, I, I think that from that presentation, you start to see that issuers, based on their strategies, might be changing their risk profile in, in a dramatic way. For example, you know, uh, two issuers have the same size portfolio, and ostensibly they have the same requirements in our program. But what you can see is that some of them may be being aggressive in how they record their MSR multiples. You might see that they have gone further down the credit curve, and that is manifesting itself in higher levels of delinquency. You might see that one of those companies has been more aggressive in leveraging the company, and taking out debt. And the way that ends up potentially showing itself is that you could have situations where $2 billion portfolios could look very different. You might have one, for example, that has been more aggressive in pricing the MSR and therefore has locked in a lower potential inflow of, of cash. They might have been more aggressive in the multiple that they recorded at. To the extent that they've been more aggressive in their credit profile, they may find themselves with higher levels of delinquencies. And then again, if you see somebody that's taken on more debt, you know, secured debt to total assets starts becoming, in my mind, one of the great predictors of you know, an issuer's ability to manage when, when the environment turns negative. And then you know, that has you know, some financial ratios that come along with that. You know, MSRs to total equity becomes disproportionate, and what you find is volatility related to capital becomes much more amplified because of that. And then, you know, again, some of the metrics that might suggest adequate cash flows coming from servicing fees start to be diminished depending on how much delinquency the, the issuer is experiencing. When you were talking about some of the ratios, if you could get a little more specific on what are some of the ratios that you guys use at Fannie Mae in evaluating someone that might be on the watch list versus someone that's in good standing? Well, for example, the issuer risk grade model, um, which is in the process of being revamped. Um, we're doing a lot of back testing at the moment on a new version. But the existing model, you know, really focuses on you know, the four big elements of the CAMELS process, we leave out management, but we focus on capital adequacy, asset quality, earnings, and liquidity. And some of the, the notable items underneath, you know, those categories might include in the capital adequacy space, MSR to tangible net worth. In the asset quality, they could be MSR to total assets. In earnings, it could be pre-tax operating margin. And notably in the liquidity, we might look at secured debt to total assets. All of these are, are combined to arrive at a final risk grade. And there are other elements, but for brevity, I've just given you a, a smattering of those. And the idea would be to, to understand how those, you know, combine to suggest, you know, the, the strength of the, the entity. Greg, we've covered a lot of ground already, and there's so much more that we could cover, but what have we 
not talked about that you would like anyone considering being a part of the program that, or that is a part of the program to know? Yeah, I think that um, the thing that I would suggest is we've enjoyed a, a 10-year stretch of pretty bucolic performance in the mortgage space. Issuers have made money through the cycle, and they have enjoyed the benefits of a very low interest rate environment. What I would ask all of them to do is is to continue to be vigilant in thinking about how they would manage should the, the environment not be as ideal as it is you know, over the last 10 years. I think the COVID-19 pandemic has um, introduced some of those topics to some of our issuers, issuers that may have not been in business at the, during the last recession. And I think they're understanding why we have, have been fairly aggressive in suggesting that issuers need to be making contingency plans given the environment that we could face in the future. And again, some of those are coming to roost as we speak. So issuers w- really would be well served by, by thinking about how do they develop a matrixed, you know, kind of liability stack? How do they layer out, you know, the, the maturity dates of their facilities, ensuring that they don't borrow the, the maximum allowable under some of their facilities in order to avoid some of the margin calls that may occur? And some of those lessons learned that some of our issuers have faced over the last two months um, I think are worthwhile for all of our issuers to, to, to bear in mind. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you being here. Our guest has been Greg Keith, Senior Vice President, Chief Risk Officer of Jenny May, and we're going to invite him back because there's a lot more we could get into, especially as we watch the current events unfold. We'll be getting more information and diving deeper in some of these aspects. Greg, thanks so much for being here with us. My pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed doing that interview. Lots of good information. Share this podcast with anyone that you know that's trying to get approved with J.D. May. But, by the way, a lot of things you talked about also true for Fannie and Freddie getting approved. There's new requirements. I don't know if it's so much new requirements as much as heightened attention to details of how you're running your business. And I encourage you to go back and listen to this. Again, I really appreciate Greg Keith coming on and willing to come on and be a part of the podcast today. I want to say a special thank you to those who are working hard, keeping their companies up to speed and performing in excellence. You need to be congratulated on that. If you're not feeling like you are up to that level or wondering if you're up to that level, please get a hold of myself. And Mark Helm, who works with me on the advisory side, does a great job, and we'd love to work with you. Also, Andy Shell, all, all of us, a part of the podcast are here for you, and we would love to be a resource to you. I encourage you to check out the website, AinsworthAdvisors.com. It is an advisory board, and we have some top professionals on it. We're expanding that list pretty rapidly and aggressively because we've had such a demand recently for services. So good to have you with us, everybody. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors. Look at our sponsor page, all of our sponsors. But I want to call a special attention out to Finastra. Say thank you to them as well as Indicom and Celerate, Ainsworth Advisor. I already talked about them. And uh, just so grateful for all of the sponsors that are here with us. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.